A week, listener, when the teams have been selected for this afternoon's big game between the Socialist Reds and the Caring Business Class Blues. With the Socialists making three big changes, dropping three players, most of their supporters didn't even know existed, including delisting altogether Adam Slammed and Wrecked, the player who allocated the team numbers at his own expense. Team captain, the pejorative Dan, told the week that was they had been dropped because they failed to follow the team plan to stack the back line. They stacked the back line, the forward line and the bloody boundary line, he complained. Richmond, of course, has an Indigenous player called Sydney Stack, but this one is very much a Melbourne Stack, although given slammed and Rex glowing sexist and homophobic and racist comments, we could be pretty confident he... He'd have a racist thing or two to say about Sydney Stack. Effing, 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 effing Sydney Stack. Imagine the effing, effing fun he could have with an Indigenous lesbian player in the Women's League covering all bases. Amazing the number of politicians who may who have been around the Socialist Party for years, stabbing their way to where they are, who had absolutely no idea any of this was going on like former Supremo and would-be big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition, whose ambition was shortened, and former bum-on-plush Senate seat Stephen Conlem Roy, still described as factional power broker, who both condemned the omitted players. Well, we know how that sort of thing would upset them. It it would hit them like a bolt from the blue. Uh, What's the worst thing about all this, we asked them. Well, obviously, they chorused, getting sprung. Luckily, the relentless pursuit of socialism, of the overthrow of the greatest little economic order of them all, is now in the safe hands of Steve Breaks with Workers and Jenny Bacon's single mum's destitute, the crowning glory of her political career, just ahead of the indigenous intervention which the Socialist Party opposed in opposition and supported enthusiastically in government. Steve could advance the socialist cause by achieving his ambition, quoted on this segment a few weeks ago, of getting the evil unions out of the Socialist Party, showing what a dedicated student he is of his party's history and origins. Oh, and reflecting on Adam smashed and wrecked, isn't it sad when the mighty have fallen, when the mighty fall? It's but three years since we celebrated Boral Big Supremo Mike Kane the Workers Oh, so well-deserved honour as the True Blue Capitalist Review Business Person of the Year. Honoured for standing up to the bullying, evil construction unions over a secondary boycott issue, that most heinous of crimes. And now, sadly this week, the very same Capitalist Review opened a story, Boral's outgoing and disaster-prone Chief Executive Mike Kane, the workers. How sad, as Mark Antony mused, oh, what a fall was there, my friends. The company was, quote, reeling from an accounting scandal and generally tough market conditions. What a difference a day or 1,500 or so of them makes, but don't worry, Mike, we won't forget your invaluable contribution to industrial relations, and we hope you get a great big golden parachute handshake to take back to the U.S. of. Well, they can be sure he will, but they all do. Millions in thanks for turning the company's fortunes around to company misfortunes. Bet there'll be lots of construction workers shedding tears at the airport as they wave him goodbye. Resource behemoth Rio Tato, the planet's iron ore supremo, Chris Saul's bury the artifacts, who wishes they could also bury the facts, 
as the brouhaha about it legally blowing up 46,000 years of Terra Nullius history just won't go away. Says he is sorry about the brouhaha, but was reported as not being sorry for blowing up the Ducan Caves, but that is a bit unfair, because Chris does say he is sorry for the reputational damage to Rio Tato the planet. It's quite galling, he complained, and that should make the indigenous owners feel better. With an impeccable record of environmental destruction and total disregard for the consequences all over the world, Chris has this enlightened solution to the reputational problem. Look, given the current law quite sensibly, quite properly, removes any right for these terra nullius people, whose culture and history, might I say, Rio Tato the planet fully respects, removes any right for these people to object to a little damage, little necessary damage to that culture and history, then the agreement should also ensure they can't complain about not being consulted, making it illegal to go public with their illegal complaints and thus avoiding the brouhaha about which we are so sorry. I know we've never had a great regard for the intellectual capacity, almost an oxymoron, of the sorry, forces of law and order, but, but, but even we might have thought amid Black Lives Matter protests erupting worldwide, the US of the UN of the US of the World Constabulary might just think it not smart to shoot yet another black man dead for the apparently capital crime of falling asleep in a junk food queue. Apart from continuing to kill innocent non-white people, the major police reaction to the protests is to protest over the protests, to protest at the way police are being vilified, which again says heaps about that intellectual capacity which would hardly touch the sides of a thimble. And here, a terra nullius kid on a bike was given a bit of a bashing by an Adelaide cop and then charged with hindering and resisting the copper. Which raises an interesting question. Given the resisting would have been reacting to the copper stopping and threatening him, what was he pulled over for in the first place? Presumably his crime, the reason for stopping him and teaching him a lesson or two about police violence, not that Terra Nullius kids need a lesson in that, was he was a black kid riding a bike, one of the more serious crimes. The protests have led to debates over monuments to white history, that is, real history, expressed in his usual thought-provoking way by former Big Supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, over what should happen to Cecil Rhodes' statue at Oxford, with some people suggesting poor old Cecil's firm conviction that non-white races were inferior may be creating a, a bit of a problem. For some, but not for tiny. Removing Cecil would be Historical vandalism, historical vandalism, he informed us, unlike blowing up non-Christian artefacts, which is just good business. All the white icons, historical vandalism. I notice you cheered wildly, Tiny, when a renter crowd tore down a statue of Saddam Hussein in Baghdad when we invaded that place. His memory deserves to be, indeed, must be obliterated, must be obliterated, as part of our liberation of Iraq. Uh, yes, it's been 17 years of invasion and train killing, so that they're still being liberated. They have been a bit slow to recognise what we're doing for them. Bit slow to recognise what we're doing for them. 
Speaking of, notice former U.S. of Secretary for U.S. of World State and big-time train killer Colon, as in full of shit, pal to the rich, called his commander-in-chief Donald Trump of the poor a chronic liar. And given that Colon, as in, was the person who produced all that irrefutable proof at the UN of the US of the UN of the world, proving evil Iraq was brimming with weapons of mass destruction, including a nuclear arsenal, and planned to invade the whole liberty, freedom and democracy loving world, which convinced the little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo here back in those dark ages and Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country Supremo Tiny Blyer to enter the never-ending illegal war, colon calling someone else a chronic liar is, is saying something. Not that the gung-ho little bald-headed bloke and Tiny Blyer needed much convincing as long as they didn't have to be shot at. In a week that was health report... Unless we've spent a week or two on Mars, we know the footy's back. And the connection? Watching the footy that's back with the telly sound down, we were bombarded with this McDonald's salt, sugar and fat junk food ad. Six baby donuts for just $3. We've got to marvel at how they can virtually give them away with a tempting shot of these deep-fried sugar-covered delights and 18 McNuggets and two large fries for a mere nine ninety-five. a footy feast with five cents change from $13. And then, speaking of sport, a race. Would you make it to the donuts and or half-time before the fatal heart attack? couple of finalies. As the tit-for-tat love between teammates and the Socialist Reds team falls like manna from heaven for Lord Rupert of Wapping and his Wapping Sin, we asked two of them what their policies for the game were. Uh, My policy is to get my bum on the seat and not that bleep bleep. Right, right, and you? My policy is to get my bum on the seat, not that bleep bleep. I remember when it was principle versus pragmatism, but suddenly pragmatism's starting to look good. And the Capitalist Review headline Thursday, Idle staff not keen to return to work. God, hope they haven't woken up there's more to life. That would be a disaster. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. I spoke yesterday with Stuart Reese, OAM human rights activist, poet, novelist, author of books on social justice, recipient of the Jerusalem Peace Prize, founder of the Sydney Peace Foundation and a regular contributor to John Menager's Pearls and Irritations. So today we look at a couple of his recent contributions, beginning with one published on the COVID-19 virus back in March the 16th and then move on to a couple more recent ones. I asked first to take us back to that earlier one posted on the 16th of March titled Learning from a Crisis and what his message was in that piece. Crises always confront uh, human beings with choices. They either wallow in grief about what has happened or they reframe the problem in order to think about a much different way of living and, and thinking. And how have you tackled these issues in future writings and further writings? Australia and other countries desperately need a different society and a different economy, and the two interdependent. We need to uh, revive 
values that are enshrined in all the clauses of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and ask ourselves how do we craft a more just and indeed productive society if we keep those clauses as the um, guiding principles. And how much joy are you getting from government since then? If you look at Morrison's response to getting us back to normal, you wouldn't be very confident. You've got this absurd reliance on um, intelligence operatives advising him. It's either intelligence or corporate interests. So that the issues about the socially just society, or indeed a fundamental question for me is what do we mean by work and how do we reward work completely ignored as though it's as though that's something that somebody with a humanities degree would think of if you get what i mean i do global capitalism on the nose before this happened do you believe that it can pick up or will that be a new normal it was on the nose but the people who run the show the invisible decision makers and pullers of levers still think that for example that growth, growth, growth is, is crucial to well-being when in fact it's been highly destructive. There's no obvious acceptance that the way we were living, the way we were destroying the planet, the way we were encroaching on um, areas of the environment that uh, didn't really belong to us, had contributed to COVID-19. In other words, it's, we do have a black death in communities and across countries and around our necks, but we seem unable to say that the destructive way in which we have been living through capitalism has made this COVID-19 inevitable. You're pushing for, or your ideal is socialism, but we don't seem to be hearing many world leaders or just leaders of any sort using that word socialism. They seem to be very frightened of it. Yeah, that's absurd. I mean, socialism actually means means two things, really. It means fellowship, and it means collective endeavour to share resources for common well-being. It gets tainted with the absurdity, with the with the authoritarian absurdities of of, um, of communism or of fascism. There's plenty of evidence that the things I'm talking about, fellowship with a view to achieving collective well-being, are going on locally in different communities. You can see that. But it doesn't get, for some reason or other, because those things occur on the periphery, there's not much bold thinking at the centre to adopt the brave and creative initiatives that, are, that occur locally. But surely the, the people at the top are fearful of anything like that because that means they lose power. That is a crucial issue. The, in fact, the exercise of power is the major issue to be addressed. I mean, we address it in some ways by saying, you know, we've got to stop having branch stacking in the Labour Party. We've got to have a, a, a national um, ICAC. <laughs> Perhaps we might stop the obscene salaries paid to chief executives, leaders of universities, leaders of government departments. So that all of those issues illustrate questions about power. The power that is taken for granted is what I call one-dimensional. It's all from the top down. We must give vice-chancellors massive salaries in order to run the show. 
what an absurd notion. If we thought about power as being life-enhancing, non-destructive, committed to universal human rights, committed to people's physical and mental health, you'd produce a very different scenario. And how many countries in the world can you point to at the moment who are, are doing the right thing by their people? I wouldn't say, in, in a sense, there isn't one country that does the right thing. But if you think of the over the decades, the values essentially of the Nordic countries, the countries where there's least inequality, that's the yardstick least inequality socially, economically, because capitalism thrives on massive inequalities to be fostered by something called competition. The Nordic countries, um, uh, crucially, but if you take, for, take for example, the um, commitment to end global warming, to protect a precious planet, the only one we've got, you'd have to say that... Um, the emission of greenhouse gases to destroy the planet is, is about abusive power. Governments that do not put a price on emissions, uh, governments that continue to think that burning fossil fuels is the way to go, we, we might not be, even be able to have this discussion in 10 or 20 years' time. The universal basic income, it's got supporters and it's got detractors. Where do you stand? I'm an unashamed supporter. I mean, they, in, in a way, the Morrison government has provided a universal basic income for three or four months, <laughs> not, not because they thought, thought it in terms of a universal basic income, but, but in order to, um, to prevent the worst effects of, um, of unemployment. But if it, it comes back to my question about work, I mean, if there was a universal basic income, then all the complex paraphernalia of how to justify a grant or from Centrelink would be, be abolished overnight. If we don't have a universal basic income, we, we continue with the poor law mentality left over from Britain in the 19th century. That says we'll only reward people whom we identify as worthy. If I look quickly at what work is beneficial to the Australian public. Two kinds that have been revealed in, um, in, the, in the COVID-19 crisis. One is suddenly we, we were aware of what we call essential frontline workers, cleaners, nurses, carers, who we previously thought, well, they're not really worth very much, so we won't pay them very much. And the second aspect of work is the, is the voluntary work that is done right across the, the nation, which gives people a great sense of self-respect and, and others and with the well-being of others. So universal basic income would, would, would encourage that voluntary work and really, I suspect, be an enormous boost to the economy overall. You've devoted quite a few paragraphs of one of your papers to the language of musicians and poets. Can you expand on your thinking in that area? Oh, yeah, I love you for asking that question. <laughs> because, look, when I talked about power being creative and, and life-enhancing and non-destructive, you only have to think of the um, 
the joy, the value, and the inspiration that is given by musicians and poets and artists of, of every description. That is what gives joy. That's what that's what uh, people remember. If you think that, I mean, I often refer to Beethoven's great Ninth Symphony, the Choral Symphony, which he said he wanted to be a, a celebration for humanity inside and outside the concert hall. And the libretto for that last movement was from a poem by the German poet Schiller called Ode to Joy. And Schiller said he wanted that poem to be a kiss for the whole earth. I mean, by 150 years or more, he anticipated questions about global warming. I mean, what could be better than a kiss for the whole earth? And we could we could spend great time on dance, pottery, art, the protest songs of the 60s that I was brought up on. And, of course, those protest songs still resonate now. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I was listening to Pete Seeger and Joan Byers from the 60s the other evening. Pete Seeger said if, I, if he had a hammer, he'd, he'd hammer all, uh, all day and all night. Uh, it would be a hammer for, for justice for everyone. And he even mentioned the word love. When was the word love identified as a crucial feature of social and economic policies? Now, that's what I mean by please to the politicians, to the commentators, please start to use a different language. You must be very distressed at the moment with the announcement by the, the Morrison government that they're making changes to funding within the universities, a huge increase in fees to obtain an arts degree. What's that going to mean? That means that um, uh, life is only about pragmatics. It's only, it's only about um, financial return. It's only about, about business and all the multidimensional features of existence that we've just talked about in, in my response to your question about music and poetry are regarded as not worthy. We're back to this worthy, non-unworthy criterion again. It's some years since I worked in the university, but it, but it, it was already becoming soulless because of lousy leadership, of massive cutbacks, of course, by, by government. There is a very strong anti-intellectual strain in this mediocre government. I mean, it's not the only mediocre government. The Johnson government in the, in the UK is desperately striving to be as um, mediocre as possible. But surely people studying the arts or for an arts degree, they're people who are learning how to think. Governments don't like people who think. Yeah. I went to universities of privileged, more privileged periods of history in which the whole experience of, of um, working hard in, in sciences, in social sciences and economics and so on was one feature of your life. The other was taking part in theatre or sport and being in association with a whole variety of people. That was a very different culture. We're actually talking about a culture. If you have a culture that says, look, your only purpose in life is to make money or to gain advantage over somebody else, then that's a recipe for saying, look, we're, we're actually inter interested in the production of mental illness. And I saw that happening at, um, at Sydney University. 
where we used to have a culture of interdependence and great colleagueship, and that was replaced by something called human resources, which was just a, <laughs> a disguised way of saying, let's run the university as though it's a bank. Unimaginative, totally irresponsible. Finally, Stuart, I'd like you to talk for a few minutes about Julian Assange, and surely he epitomises the silencing of the messenger. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I tweeted this morning. I mean, it's a story of cruelty, of massive cruelty. And I've asked the question of Q&A uh, this evening. I, I doubt they'll put the question. Is the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister, Morrison and Payne, are they for the cruelty or against it? Or are they merely subservient to what the UK and the US tell them to do? There's a hidden issue here. It's about courage in public life. Julian Assange, in common with other great whistleblowers and protesters for justice across history, had shown great courage, enormous courage. If you only think about the collateral damage video showing the, the murder of people in streets uh, in, in Baghdad suburbs, you'd have to say that was an enormously brave thing to do, to take on the wicked and evil power of the United States Pentagon, who for three years tried to stop that. So, so what do we do? We want, to, we want to punish him. We want to be as cruel as possible. In the case of Australia, monumentally cowardly and hypocritical by saying justice must take its course. What justice? What possible justice? They really should be saying cruelty must take its course because we don't know anything about courage to protect Australian citizens. Yeah, it's very distressing. Are those your final words? I have to say, stay on the side of hope. I mean, if I, if I look at that journal that I now write for, Pearls and Irritations, the brainchild of the wonderful John Menadieu, then you can see in the articles that come out weekly there that there's, there are groups of people saying, my God, this is <laughs> what we're doing to ourselves, to our country, to the planet, is self-destructive. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Last Wednesday, seven West Papuan activists faced court in Balakapan to hear the verdict of their trial, which became a trial for treason. Prosecutors had sought up to 17 years in jail. On the weekend, I spoke with activist Ronnie Carini for his reaction to the verdict which was far less than the prosecution had asked for. This is his reaction. My first reaction when I hear the results of the charges is a, a big sigh of relief that the Balikpapan 7 were charged with treason. It's a high crime charges, but to be sentenced to less than a year, it's a big sigh of relief. Well, what were they charged for then if it's not treason? Because if it was treason, they would have got more than that. Very interesting. Judges read out the charges and still in line with the treason charge. The thing is, the evidence are nowhere near those treason charges. And it's just silly. Basically, 
those charges are just ridiculous and silly because basically they were charged with like the evidence that was provided were um, like the handphone, some Christmas lights and just some food that was found in someone's possession. And it's just ridiculous, basically. So basically those um, sentencing is for Jakarta to save their face and shame because of their already outpouring support in the lead up, um, basically from the civil society, the Papuans in West Papua holding rallies and webinars, as well as um, Indonesian students coming out and hosting webinars. And, and then our Pacific Solidarity Movement as well coming out and really using the social media to apply that pressure. And so we see in the outcome as well, um, it's the power to the people that really demonstrate the, the, the outcome. Yeah, it was an absolutely incredible effort by everybody. Is this the first time you've been able to get, gather so much support? Yes, from my living memory in terms of um, if we look, look back in just in early 2000, um, especially in 2004 with the arrest of Philip Kama, who was charged with treason and sentenced to 15 years in jail, and he served nearly a year, more than a, a decade. And then, yeah, so he, we, we campaigned around him when he was in prison, but not that many support. Even um, there were a case of the Jayapura Five. This was in the Third Papuan People's Congress um, in 2011, and that was massive. And the Jayapura Five, the leaders who were declared at the Congress, were arrested and charged with treason, um, serving up to to three years, but in terms of the support, we didn't see that uh, massive support. But for the case of the Balik Papan 7, given that they did organize anti-racism protests, but charged with treason, with what happened in the U.S. and the uprising that really takes over around the world in, in the collective solidarity, I mean, in Indonesia itself, um, in the students and youth, came out in expressing their support to what happened in the U.S., but then the questions about what's happening in Indonesia and especially in West Papua case is similar in a way that in 2016 there was a young Papuan who also faces the similar incident to George Floyd, but there wasn't any outcry. And so that sparks the hashtag of Papuan Lives Matter conversation online, and that's when this case of the Bali Papan 7 were also critical in the conversation. And so we, we see that support and as well as the conversation, which the Indonesian government through its intelligence operations trying to apply intimidations to host of those webinars in Papuan academics, even Indonesian students, bodies basically that were organizing those conversations were intimidated and called for um, being wanted for organizing, simply organizing those conversations. They've been sentenced to up to 11 months, the seven of them. Is any of that time concurrent with the time that they've already spent in jail? Does that come off the sentence? That's correct, yes. So basically, yeah, they'll be up to 11, or 10 months to 11 months is concurrent with the time they've already served. So in a in few weeks' time, they will walk out. But that 
the case also presents the other need for advocacy of um, the other political prisoners in West Papua who were also charged on treason, basically for the West Papua pricing in 2019. So at the moment, in across the West Papuan prisons, um, in Sorong, there are at least um, one woman and as well as uh, four other uh, Papuan youth or student activists. In Jayapura, another key prominent leader, Bazoka Logo, who is also a director bureau of the ULMWP, is detained there. And up until now, there hasn't been any sentencing of his time there. So he's still behind bars. And 20-plus other activists are detained in Fakpak, even in Merauke, Timika. So the issue is still alive, especially with political prisoners' case. And as well as in Duga, especially when in the late 2018, after the incident, Duga incident, at least over 30,000 internally displaced persons, mostly are women and children, um, at the moment, basically in displacement and from their districts and villages. So the issue is really appealing now to the conversations in Australia and the region of the need to support the political prisoners and also the human rights condition in West Papua. And not just that, it's also to get rid of this charge of treason. Yeah, absolutely. And this is crazy in a way that um, any peaceful demonstration or any expression of political view are seen to be a threat to the national interest and it is bound to be of treason charges. For West Papuans, we're seeing that, you know, Indonesian law is racist towards Papuans, and the law itself makes West Papuans illegal within Indonesia. Well, you've set the precedent now, Ronnie, with the, the great support that you've gained for your cause, and we can only hope that if the Indonesians try to charge these others with treason, that they'll get the same treatment that you've um, put out around the world to support your people who have been charged. Yes, and that is our commitment and aim to really maintain the support that is happening now in Indonesia and also within the region and to really get the conversation amongst just the solidarity network and the solidarity movement to really um, start talking about the human rights issue but also the right to self-determination if this can really generate those, those conversations within the grassroots, and then it will also uh, bring that upward pressure to the governments and looking within the uh, policies, foreign policies, or within the regional framework, which, like for Australia case, it is a member to the Pacific Island Forum, and Australia has agreed with the, with the outcome of the Pacific Island Forum, the communique, 2019 is to call for the visit of the UN Human Rights Commissioner to visit the region. And so this is important to remind that basically for our listeners and um, supporters is that Australian government is accountable to that agreement and must also act and take that leadership role to really advocate within the regional framework to call for the visit of the UN Human Rights High Commissioner to visit West Papua and, and, and investigate the situation on the ground and the condition on the ground 
impartially as well as yeah objectively without any any influence from the state authorities and so we're calling for Australian government basically to be able to take a leadership role now and act within the commitment of the Pacific Island communique to call for the visit of the UN High Commissioner. Finally, Ronnie, the people of West Papua have waited far too long for their rights and their self-determination, and all I can say is congratulations for a job well done. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. It is one of the small steps that is shifting the paradigm and also in terms of really giving the the confidence in points and our solidarity movement that yes, um, incrementally we are building that momentum towards a concrete change that Papuan's aspirations need to be met, um, especially with the historical political grievances that is yet to be resolved. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. You've been listening to a, a very happy Ronnie Karini, West Papuan activist, speaking about the results of the trial in Indonesia of West Papuan activists. And those are the sort of reasons why 3CR is so important to keep going to support people in struggle. So that webpage is 3cr.org.au to donate to our June appeal, or if you'd like to do it through the phone, office hours are from 1 to 5, 9419 8377. I do hope you can help. 3CR. We understand that many people in many countries are struggling to survive due to the Corona 19 pandemic. As governments deal with fallout, some well, others with little regard to their citizens. But few people can imagine what life is like for refugee communities, mainly in the Middle East and Northern Africa, where life is precarious without an added threat. One such community is that of Palestinian refugees in camps in Lebanon. Most have been there since 1948, and in more recent years, Palestinians and others forced from Syria due to the war there. Helen McHugh, Australian human rights campaigner, is one of those who does understand. She speaks daily with Dr. Alfred Mahmoud, who lives and works in the Burj El Barajna refugee camp in Lebanon. Alfred is the director of the Palestinian Women's Humanitarian Organisation and has been to Australia a number of times. When I spoke with Helen recently, I asked her what the latest report from Alfred was, what she told her about the situation in the camp where she's lived most of her life. Originally, the numbers of COVID in the country, in, inside Lebanon, were actually quite low. And then they made a decision to open up the country. And so people came, Lebanese mostly, came back from overseas uh, into the country. And as a result of that, there was a spike uh, in the number of cases. And also, there had been some demonstrations and there, was, there were probably some more a spike in um, the number of cases. So earlier last week, there'd been about 60 cases uh, a day, but the last couple of days, there's been about 25 cases a day. But you've got to keep in mind that, you know, the Lebanese total population is only about 4 million, maybe 4.5 million. 
But the good news in that scenario is that uh, amazingly so far, the people in the camps in Beirut have not been hit by the COVID virus. Was one family up in Wavell Camp in the Bekaa Valley, but that was the mother and three children up at Wavell Camp, which is in the Bekaa Valley. They've been affected, but they're recovering from the virus now. They're the only Palestinians so far in Lebanon that have been affected. Olfat was just making the joke the other day, the joke going around in the camps that COVID virus goes to the edge of the camps and sees how miserable it is and how poor all the people are and what a dreadful situation that it is that it decides to leave them alone and walk away. Their sort of black humour in um, you know, trying to deal with the anxiety. People are very anxious because the situation in the camps, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, first of all, in Bojavarashni camp itself now has a population of 40,000 people, huge high density of population. Their health status is also very low. We've commonly seen blood pressure, diabetes and other poverty, some of which are poverty-related illnesses. And so the camps are particularly vulnerable at the moment, not least of which the cost of living in Lebanon has skyrocketed. It's almost impossible to buy food and basics. Most Palestinians are not allowed to work, as you maybe remember from our previous discussions, and so they just get casual day work. That, of course, has not been available because everything's been shut down, like in Australia. And as a consequence, their situation is very, very dire. UNRWA, which is the United Nations Agency for the Palestinians, did give them a $25 per person one-off support at the initial at the start of the outbreak. But, you know, even if you had a family of, of sort of regular numbers, that would only be 150 US dollars, which uh, goes absolutely nowhere at the moment. So the situation, like uh, everywhere else, is that the schools have been shut down and, and the living conditions remain serious. It's impossible to do proper distancing in such circumstances. Some provisions have been made for masks, but most of the time these are uh, unavailable. People can't avail of them. You're saying there's 40,000 people there. In what area? One kilometre square. They go up? Yes, yes. And also the numbers have increased substantially since the Syrian crisis and um, uh, not all the refugees, Syrian refugees, have returned home either. So the camps do have a substantial number of Syrian refugees. What about a water situation? I'd imagine that's pretty dire as well, yet people are supposed to wash their hands and keep clean. That must be dreadfully difficult. It is. It's, it's pretty well impossible, actually. So people have, have always had um, difficult access to clean water. And, of course, now it's, it's got to be, you know, much worse than that. And also the electricity is very sporadic. And so people can't keep, you know, they can't keep provisions at all. And they don't really have much access to hand sanitised materials. A feeder, Union Aid Abroad, a feeder, have provided prevention and hygiene kits, which included, you know, soap, disinfectant and gloves that they provided to people of the more extreme vulnerable households. But 
there's just a limit on those that were available for them to purchase as well. The schooling, of course, has been shut down. All the schools have been shut down. And that included the schools um, that the early child um, care centres that the Palestinian Women's Humanitarian Organisation was running as well. And they have actually provided some provision through for those that can avail of it through WhatsApp and Instagram. The teachers have provided information to take home in much the same way that our teachers have responded in Australia. So they've got basics such as their mathematics, Arabic and English language that's still going on for some people, but this has been a major blow to their um, education programs. And in some of these really small houses or flats, I suppose you call them, there's up to three, four generations living in that small space together? Yes, give you a bit of an idea. If you laid three single mattresses down in a row, maybe another couple at the other end, like make them into a square, that would constitute your your average uh, living room in one of the camps. So that's what people do. They put mattresses on the floor and that's where they sleep at night and then those mattresses are taken up during the day and piled in the corner so they've got somewhere to live. You can see that it's a very, very, very small area for the vast majority of Palestinians, uh, living space, community living space. You know, sometimes the people have built rooms above their basic rooms, but that's very precarious as well. They're very unstable and some of those have collapsed as well. The thing as well, apart from having, you know, trying to make provision for the family, people have also taken in Syrian refugees and where they're able to, those Syrian refugees pay a small amount of money to the Palestinians as well. The biggest problem really is access to food. People are definitely on the verge of starving. Even Olfat, who, you know, does have support, you just can't afford to buy foodstuffs at the supermarket or down in the market. Um, the inflation is just so high, up to 600%, and people can't afford you know, to buy those foodstuffs. So that's a very major problem. What food would it be in the daily diet for a family these days? People, when they knew that the virus was coming, did what they've always done for civil war. So they went and stockpiled sugar and tea. They stockpiled lentils and onions and these basic things that can they can be stored easily and rice. They would be having a diet along those lines. Uh, the Lebanese themselves also, you know, are facing serious access to food. It's not that there's shortage of food. They just can't afford to pay for it. So the Palestinians would be living on basic, really basic diets such as that. With Trump cutting the funding to UNRWA, how has that impacted the people in the camps? It means that the services which UNRWA provided before, such as the health services and the education services, they've all been cut considerably. I think I remember also telling me that previously the schools, the UNRWA schools, they, they would have two classes in a day, like they'd have a morning school time and then they'd have for a different another group of kids and afternoon school time. So they would split the day in order to give the kids some opportunity at school. And with the UNRWA cuts, as I understand it, they've had to do that three times a day just to give the kids some 
you know, opportunity to go to school, which is a huge drain on the teachers, huge drain. Does the Lebanese government mm. contribute anything at all to the people in those camps? No. Most people get money from overseas if they've got relatives living overseas who are able to provide for them. Some people in extreme cases will get UNRWA extra support, those that are in extreme cases. But as I said, most people rely on this very casual daily work that's available for them to do when when the economy's working and and when they're not got COVID nineteen. But they don't they wouldn't have any financial reserves at all. If people did come down with this virus, it would be virtually impossible to isolate them, is that correct? Absolutely correct. Um what happened with the case in Wavel Camp up in the Becker Valley, they were taken to an UNRWA hospital and they were isolated in that hospital. And fortunately, nobody so far, in the camps anyway, with the exception of those people, nobody has uh, come down with the virus. Do they have some sort of guard on the, the borders of the camps to stop people coming in now? What they've done with the other non-government organisations and, and camp committees is that they, in Borjabarashmi, they have a rotation of individuals who will do temperature screening from everybody coming in and out of the camp. So in a way, you know, they're doing their own monitoring, which is good. They also provide uh, information to people in the camp about, you know, the need to wash their hands at least and distance as much as possible and reduce the, and reduce the normal greetings which are an embrace as you know kissing on two cheeks you know they've, they've tried to encourage people not to do that so they're doing what they can about distancing and they're doing what they can about protecting the camps as well uh, so far it seems to have worked thank god because if it got into the camp it would be very difficult um, to you know restrain it what does Alfred tell you about what is a normal day for her now in those camps? Well, she she actually teaches at the university, so her day uh, has been very, very full with teaching at the university. She does go across to the camp and she's in regular contact with the girls in the camp. I'll just say in relation to her, she uh, has had a lot of trouble, as with everybody else, with the internet and other services in Lebanon because the electricity goes down and the services are not very good quality and doing teaching online is much more, a lot more stressful than doing your face-to-face teaching. In addition, where she was, she'd been working for about three months and then she was told by the dean of the school where she is that terribly sorry they didn't have any money. And so she'd worked all of this time and she hadn't actually received any money. They have amended that a little bit, but so she's had a little bit of money, but there just isn't money in the university to be paying these teachers. So she is in touch with the, the girls, the teachers inside the camp, and they will be um, running the various programs that they used to run in the early education centre they're now running those on WhatsApp or on Instagram and they would be facing the same problems of, of, you know, uh, access to the internet, um, access to good services within the internet. They're also doing, giving out hard copies and they're in touch with the parents about how the parents can help the kids 
very much like the teachers here, actually, how the teachers uh, can actually help the kids in the camp continue to do their studies so they don't fall too far behind. In a little while, I'll ask you what's the best way that people can help the people in the camps. But first, mm-hmm. uh, Helen, take you back in time to when you first met Alfred. When was that? It was uh, October 1982. Um, I had been working for the World Health Organization and I resigned after the Savage massacre. I felt that the United Nations had a responsibility to protect the refugees and they had failed that, as they did later on in Srebrenica as well, by the way, and in Rwanda. Anyway, they failed to protect these two and a half thousand Palestinians in the, who were massacred at at in um, Zavrishatila camp. So I resigned um, my WHO post and went back as a volunteer and that's when I met uh, Olfat. She was a nurse. She was um, working in the emergency department and I waited for her to finish what she was doing and then we had a bit of a chat and we worked out where I would stay temporarily, which I did. I stayed in the hospital there with other foreign nurses. So that was upstairs in what was called Gaza Hospital in Sabra camp. You're listening to Helen McHugh, Australian human rights campaigner, speaking about her friend Alfred Mahud and her life in Palestine refugee camps in Lebanon. Very soon after I met her parents in Borjava-Brajni camp, which was not very far away, you could walk there easily, and we remained friends since then. She was one of the first people when I set up with Cliff Dolan, the Union Aid Abroad, well, at that stage it was a feeder, and later became named Union Aid Abroad a feeder. When we set the organisation up, the second project we were able to have was to train nurses in community nursing, because that was one of the areas identified by Alpha and other people in the camps when I was there. She was one of the number of nurses that came to Australia and did some work in what we had in those days, community health centres. She then went back and actually did some teaching. She concentrated more on teaching and doing community health work. And then eventually she set up the Palestinian Women's Humanitarian Organisation. She's been to Australia numerous times speaking about the situation of the camps. And during the time I worked with the feeder, I spent time there. And then after I resigned, I... I also spent time there um, with her and we've remained very close friends since then. And um, fairly recently, after many, many interviews, we compiled her history, her story, and with Danny Cooper, managed to publish through Wild Dingo Press her biography, Tears for Tashiha is the book, and um, that details uh, her story and her courage and her extraordinary resilience through years of war and years of deprivation. Well, she's truly a wonderful humanitarian and she's very dedicated and, um, you know, she's my dear friend. I'm worried about her. That's why I talk, we talk to each other every day or we text, We you know, we do WhatsApp. And so I'm in touch with her every day because her health's not magnificent, you know, we're all getting on. And she has a few health issues, so of course I worry about her. Must have made a, a huge impact on you back in 1982 for you to then devote virtually a lot of your life to the Palestinian cause. Can you describe what it was like when you first went there 
and saw the aftermath of that massacre? Um, just prior to that, actually, I, I was on my way back to do an assignment. Having completed one assignment, I was on my way back to another assignment in Kuwait to help them set up an in-service nursing education program. When I arrived there, Israel had invaded Lebanon, and so they set it to the headquarters in for the Middle East, uh, for WHO in the Middle East in Alexandria. They said, oh, we can't get any of the older WHO nurses. They won't go to Lebanon. Would you like to go, being an Australian, being young? I just said, yes, of course I'll go. And uh, one of the things I remember saying at the time was, well, you know, I haven't done midwifery, so I'm not quite sure if I get into a situation and find myself having to deliver babies, how will I go? And so they said, no, don't worry about that. That won't be an issue for you. So I then went to Syria. I was then seconded from WHO to work with UNRWA, the Palestinian agency. I went to Syria and then I went down into the Bekaa Valley and I was based in Baalbek and I stayed in Baalbek oh, a number of months. I've forgotten the exact amount of months now. But at the time, there were many, many doctors and nurses working for UNRWA who had fled from the south of Lebanon there were not enough uh, nurses and doctors in the south of Lebanon to provide services for those who were at that time living under Israeli occupation in the south of Lebanon. So I was in touch with my superiors and said, you know, I'd really like to, I think the Palestinians can manage here in the Bekaa Valley. It was very stable. I'd like to go to the south of Lebanon. And they said, well, you'll have to come back to Alexandria to talk to us about that. I did. I went back to Alexandria during that time that the Sabah-Shatila massacre took place. And so I resigned from the UN because of that, went back to Syria and then eventually found my way back to the camps in Bourjavarashni and that's when I met Olfat. I stayed, as I said before, living in uh, Gaza Hospital. I lived there, I don't know, for maybe... I've forgotten the exact number of months, but I lived there for a period of time. And then the Lebanese were actually rounding up all the foreigners and they were asking the foreigners to leave. I decided that I thought I might want to come back to Lebanon so I didn't want to be expelled with the difficulty of then not being able to come back easily. So that's when I came back to Australia. I don't know, the beginning of 1983 and then May, April, May, had this idea that Australia had done very little for the Palestinians and so I started the embryonic idea that, especially with the Labor government in power, because Bob Hawke had just won early on in that year. And so I thought, well, here's maybe an opportunity to see if we can do more for Palestinians, because we weren't doing very much at all. And so I had discussions with DFAT, not DFAT, but you know the, the aid arm of the government, because it's changed its name so many times now. AusAid at one stage. Then I went round and talked to various people and was sent here and there. Some people saying, oh no, that's a silly idea. Until finally I met up with Cliff Dolan. I had a written proposal and I, as I said, I'd talked to the government and the bureaucrats were quite keen on the idea of an aid agency within the union movement. And so went to Cliff, whom I'd never met before, and we had a meeting of about 20 minutes. And he just looked at me at the end of it and had a look at the proposal and said, yes, we should have been doing something like this ages ago. And 
I'll put it to the executives of the ACTU. And that's what he did. And um, Afida was born in January 1984. It's a long time now, Helen. How do you believe it's gone over those years? Could it have achieved more or do you believe it's pushed it above its weight? Well, if you look back, somebody did a calculation at one stage and we had actually helped train... Well, I'm speaking globally now, okay? We had helped train about 80,000 Cambodians because the feeder works, you know, we worked in so many areas and we played a very, very major role. There was only two international agencies that were providing support to the African National Congress when they were in exile, Australia and the Swedes. We were there in Cambodia, you know, from 1986, you know, at a time just after the shocking devastation in that country. And we've been there supporting Cambodians ever since that time. Impact globally has been, I think actually, you know, if you look at them, so many people have contributed over the years now, I think it's been very impressive as an agency, as an aid agency. And certainly during the earlier years and when Labor government was in power, I had very good working relationship with Bill Hayden and then Gareth Evans. I had access to them and I had a great deal of support from them. So we were actually able to do a lot of human rights advocacy work around refugees, particularly, for instance, you know, where we work with Eritrean refugees, we work with Palestinian refugees, we work with the South African refugees. So the initial focus of the work was with refugees, training in healthcare and training for jobs, both in Vietnam and Cambodia. And our focus was to help people to, you know, to gain skills. Very obvious to me and to also when after the war in Lebanon, after 1982, that in such circumstances, people are either arrested or they're killed or, you know, they've moved to another area, that you actually don't have the human resources to provide the services that you had prior to the crisis or the war. And I remember going to UNICEF and to other UN agencies and basically we're not interested in training. And so our focus was always initially with refugees and training with the purpose of providing opportunities for skills. AFIDA still does that, but over the years, uh, it's you know, as all organisations grow and change, it has changed away from that particular humanitarian focus onto other issues. At the moment, one of the key and very successful campaigns has been with trying to eliminate the use of asbestos in Asia. And Philip Hazelton there took over as executive director after I left and um, he's now working for AFIDA running that program in Asia. And AFIDA in that circumstance is definitely punching well above our weight in terms of mobilising governments and officials and raising the issue of asbestos in Asia. Going back to the Palestinians, what have we achieved? Well... We have definitely provided considerable amount of humanitarian assistance to the Palestinian refugees, especially those in Lebanon. We've trained a number of, you know, hundreds of people in different sorts of training over the years. Um, we've provided early childhood education to, to children with massive programs for women. 
if you look back at that program, I think it's been a very, very successful program run by Olfat and the other people in the team over there. Ken Davis, who's been responsible from the AFIDA end for quite a number of years now. But we've also had a really, really excellent program in Palestine itself with the Marne Development Centre. And that's basically, this is where the where the AFIDA work shifted because in that circumstance we've been working principally in food sustainability and so we've been providing assistance to people to establish small businesses. Apart from that great work that AFIDA and other organisations do for the Palestinian people, it's surely a shame on the world governments, certain world governments, that over 70 years later, Palestinians are still languishing in refugee camps, even in Palestine itself. Absolutely. You'll remember the shocking incident in 2003 when the UN representative uh, in Iraq was blown up, Sergio de Millo, very good documentary on him uh, on Netflix. Uh, He was a great humanitarian. And the person who wrote his biography is called Samantha Power, and she later became the US ambassador to the United Nations under Obama. And I'm actually reading her biography at the moment because of the way that she wrote Sergio's biography. I'm actually reading her autobiography. I'm absolutely struck by the fact that this very extensive autobiography and detail of her time as UN ambassador, not once does she mention Israel, not once does she mention the atrocities that have been committed against the Palestinians, the war crimes that have been committed against Palestinians, despite the fact that she wrote a very substantial book about the Holocaust, about the Armenian genocide, about the Rwanda genocide. But not once, in this book anyway, has she made any reference at all to the war crimes that were committed by and continue to be committed by Israel against the Palestinians. I've just been going through some of the details um, that I received from Ali Kazak, the former Palestinian representative here, who fortunately still continues to supply us with very valuable information, and articles by Gideon Levy, a very well-known Israeli journalist. It is unbelievable when you think that it, even as of now, they are still flying over Palestinian agricultural land in Gaza and destroying it with some sort of substances that they're spraying from a drone. Just the other day, there was evidence of settlers going into Palestinian camps and shooting up their water tanks, which you know, which are actually on the roofs of their houses, so then you know they're not protected and they're very vulnerable. And also at this time, people need clean water. There's another article which is truly shocking about prior to the COVID outbreak when the young Palestinians were going to the border and throwing stones and protesting at the Israeli occupation and and shocking situation in Gaza where they the snipers very uh, openly talked about and joked about the number of knees that they had hit during the day and the number of legs. And so there's, you know, thousands of young men who are now disabled as a result of snipers because they were very close to one another. They weren't very far. 
And so the Israelis could see exactly what they were doing. And they did that repeatedly and repeatedly to these young people, not least of which, uh, you know, among the war crimes was the deliberate murder of a young Palestinian nurse who was clearly identified as a health worker and the other Palestinian journalists who were also clearly identified as media. So there are numerous war crimes which fortunately now now before the International Court. But nobody hears about these things. It doesn't uh, hit the news. These shocking crimes uh, continue to be perpetrated by Israelis with no concern at all for the devastation. For instance, the Israelis calculated that in Gaza you need at least 1,800 calories a day, roughly. So the amount of calories they've calculated, the amount of food um, they've calculated that uh, the Palestinians can survive on coming in from Israel is uh, 110 calories a day. In other words, they're close on making sure that they've got really poor nutrition. It just goes on and on and on. Um, you know, I, I feel sickened every time I read one of these articles. And these articles are written by Israeli journalists. But do we hear about them in Australia? No, we don't. Thank you for listening to me, though, Jan. Finally, what's the best way to support Alfred and her community in that Lebanese refugee camp? The best way is to go to the Union Aid Abroad Afida, look at the donations, um, scroll down through the donations until you find the Palestinian site. And you've been listening to Helen McHugh speaking about the situation for Palestinian refugees in camps in Lebanon and I do hope that some of you might be able to assist by contacting AFIDA, A-P-H-E-D-A. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Last week we heard from Karen Adams from the Human Rights Legal Centre outlining the dire environmental, health and cultural consequences of the Rio Tinto Panguna mine, 30 years after the local people forced the closure of that mine. Today, the Jubilee Australia Research Centre's Executive Director, Dr Luke Fletcher, is focusing on the proposed amendments to the Bougainville Mining Act, titled Blank Check, the risk of the proposed amendments to the Bougainville Mining Act. I asked Luke first to talk a little about Jubilee Australia and its involvement with Bougainville. Jubilee Australia is an organisation that does um, research and advocacy into the issues of corporate accountability and economic justice in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, essentially, we we look at the impact, the footprint that Australian corporate and, and government policies have on our near neighbours. A lot of our work in the last few years has been in PNG and, and some of that has been in Bougainville and looking at Bougainville's choices that it's facing for its development and um, especially with the, the, the big choice it really faces is whether to develop on the back of reopening a mining sector or whether there are other choices for it. You work with other Australian NGOs and also NGOs around the world in your work? We do. We work a lot with uh, a number of groups in Australia, including the Human Rights Law Centre and uh, Aid Watch and Action Aid and quite a few different groups, actually. And uh, essentially, we, we, we sort of partner with groups that, that are trying to achieve the same sort of goals as us. And internationally, we, we tend to work with partners when we're working on particular 
projects particular uh, that are affecting particular communities. We like to try and team up with NGOs and civil society groups in the country that we're working, uh, but we're also part of a number of sort of international networks of civil society groups that that do the same sort of work of us, and those are you know, regional and global networks. Well, the focus today is Bougainville, and back in early 2019, Dr John Momis announced that the autonomous Bougainville government, which he led, was intending to amend the Bougainville mining laws. What did the ABG find as problems with the existing mining laws? Look, I, I can't speak for the ABG. Uh, we, we can only comment on what the uh, amendments were, you know, the implications that the amendments were intended to to have or the, the changes that the amendments would have. The, the changes were quite radical. Essentially, what the, the amendments would do if enacted is that they would remove, a, um, and most important concern that we have is they would remove a very important right of landowners to have sort of a veto power over whether a mining development happens on their land. And at the moment, under the 2015 Bougainville Mining Act, landowners have reasonably strong rights to be consulted. Um, they, they certainly could be better than, than, they, than they are, but there's at least a certain number of um, obligations on the government to consult with landowners and to get their approval essentially for new mining projects. And the, the, the biggest flaw in the new legislation or the, the new amendments is that essentially this right of to be consulted and this right of veto would be removed and taken away from the landowners and virtually all power given to the executive branch of the, of the government. So essentially like the cabinet of the Bougainvillean government, which is called the executive committee. There, there are a number of other problems as well, but that was, that's really been the main criticism um, uh, that has been made since the laws were proposed and Jubilee decided to get some legal advice and uh, just to, to, to sort of see if uh, those criticisms were merited and, and hence our report last week, Blank Check, which backed up really the, the criticisms and, and found that this, this, this free prime informed consent was what well, has been taken away. Just to go back to that announcement by... Mummus. Uh, he mightn't have said outright why he was doing it, but why did the cabinet knock it back, or, or why did why was the cabinet unhappy? Yeah, I mean, I think it was really just what I just said that that that, that, that there were criticisms of of the the, the landowners being um, essentially taken out of the equation when it comes to being consulted, mm. and that that seems to have been the main the main thing that that, that, that raised ire in Bougainville, and that the, there have been attempts to have it passed through Parliament and they've been unsuccessful. So enough parliamentarians um, in the ABG, the Autonomous Bougainvillean Government, were were uncomfortable. And, uh, I mean, yeah, so, so that, that seems to have been the main uh, worry for people and certainly our main worry as well. Who are the landowners on Bougainville? It's said to be a matrilineal society. Does that mean that the women are the landowners? Uh, it is a matrilineal society, and uh, in that sense, the customary title, if you like, is, is passed down from mother to daughter in that way. Uh, since colonisation, uh, however, the, the kind of matrilineal 
culture is not as strong as it as it was as it was before colonization and it doesn't mean that although although it's still a matrilinear society in many ways there have been ways in which sort of men have have come to exert more control over the landowner groups so there's been that shift if you like but the landowners essentially it's it's, it's customary land so what, what it means the same as in, in png and many other parts of melanesia so what it means is that land is is owned by clans and if you are identified as a member of that clan which you which is the right that you get through you know who your parents are then you and and the other members of the clan sort of are in theory at least collectively supposed to decide about what happens on their land now, sometimes these things can be subverted if particular individuals or, or groups get sort of are able to sort of gain influence within a group, but in theory that's how it's supposed to work. When and how were the, the landowners consulted about these amendments? Uh, that's a good question actually, and, and I, I don't have a full answer for you in terms of whether how much the um, the government went around and spoke to individual groups. Certainly, there was there's been discussion in the media about it and that sort of thing. Uh, but um, I think that I, uh, our impression, and I, I wouldn't want to be held to the wall on this, but our impression is that there hasn't been a lot of, of consultation. But I can't um, I can't say that with any confidence. We're talking 20 years after the ending or the closure of that mine, and the Human Rights Law Centre is now taking on Rio Tinto in the sense to take responsibility for the environmental damage. What does these amendments say about the possibility of environmental damage and who's going to take ownership of it? Yeah, actually, Jubilee Australia is part of that campaign as well, uh, about that you're referring to the, the issue of, of the environmental clean-up from the, the tailings damage. And uh, in fact, we we've been we've been assisting Human Rights Law Centre with their 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 research and and with their advocacy on that. The the question of of the tailings is one where the, okay, essentially there's a there's a dispute between between our sort of our understanding of what the company's obligations should be and the company's own reading of the situation. So the company argues that because it, it got all the necessary environmental permits back in the early 70s when the mine was built that it therefore doesn't have any obligations as to the environmental damage that subsequently occurred. Now, there's a couple of points to make about that. The first one is that the environmental regulations were extremely poor in the early 70s. PNG was still under Australian administration and it was just incredibly lax. Um, approach to the tailings problem, and in fact, PNG has seen with with cases like Pangaea and Octeti and and Porga and other mines where you have what they call riverine tailings disposals, where basically the the mine waste is dumped straight into a river untreated. PNG has seen some of the most egregious cases in the world of environmental damage due to to mines, and it's partly also because gold and copper mining is prone to particular problems because of the toxicity that comes from the leaching of heavy metals as well in the process that's called acid rock drainage. But in the case of, of Panguna um, and, and the other cases I mentioned, you just have this sort of huge amounts of sort of waste 
being flowing down through these rivers and, and polluting wetlands and, and waterways and, and essentially ruining them. And that's, that's what the Human Rights Law Centre report after the mine documented so well. So we believe that, that Rio Tinto, which was the majority owner of the mining company at the time, called, which is called Bougainville Copper Limited or BCL, has an ethical obligation to essentially clean up its mess. I mean, the second point to make is that Rio Tinto claims that because the mine was essentially halted because of the outbreak of the Civil War, that they therefore don't have any responsibility anymore. And in fact, they divested their shares in Bougainville Copper Limited in 2016, which sort of further in their mind distances them from the need to do anything. Um, however, again, the situation is much more complicated because... Um, in fact, it was the encouragement of the company um, that partly led to the, the, the conflict breaking out. So they really can't just wash their hands of it. And uh, as we've seen with the recent tragedy in the Pilbara with the blowing up of those, um, those cultural sites, the company actually has, and in fact many other cases, the company has a, a very poor record on human rights. So uh, that's a matter of great concern. Well, look into the future if these amendments go through. What safeguards are there for future mines? Because Bougainville is full of mountains and rivers and ravines where mining could take place. Well, there are no safeguards, essentially. I mean, essentially, not only is the right to free, prone, informed consent, like I mentioned before, taken away, but the environmental, the environmental regulation... It's very vague as to whether whether there will be any really strict uh, environmental oversight of um, environmental assessments and that sort of thing. So if this type of legislation were to go through, it really puts all the, the power in the hands of the government and the executive of the government. And, you know, essentially, the, like I said, the, 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 the version of the cabinet to really, so if they want to do something, there's very, very little by way of, of regulation that's going to be able to stop them. So that's, that's a matter of really, really deep concern that should be for, for all both opinions. Well, where's the push coming from for the government for these changes? Is it foreign mining companies? The amendments are associated with an, uh, there's an association with an Australian company called Kapulis, which is a West Australian company which doesn't actually have a lot of experience in the mining sector. The details are a bit shady. That seems to be the entity that would share ownership or share control, that is to say, of all of the rest of the country that isn't already attributed to mining leases, which is, in fact, most of the country. Essentially, this proposed entity would be an amalgam of the Bougainvillean government and this Australian company, Kabulis, or at least that, that seems to be the intention of the legislation. So reading between the lines, it seems as though there has been very strong advocacy from individuals in, in this company towards um, having these, these legislation amended in this way. So certainly that also raises alarm bells for us as, as a civil society watchdog. There seems to be outside influence on the whole process. And are there other mining companies waiting on the wings? There are sort of three main companies that are jostling for access to the resources on Bougainville. There's, we already mentioned Bougainville Copper, which we've already talked about, which used to be part of Rio Tinto. 
and then there's this Kabbalist group, and then there's a, a, another group which also has ties to Australia called RTG. Uh, so they're all sort of jostling for control of resources, and, and there's sort of legal legal kind of cases going on in Australia about the shenanigans that's been going on between between them. So, and then then there's sort of the, uh, there's some Chinese interest as well. So there's definitely a lot of outside groups who are you can see sort of big dollar signs, which is yeah another matter of concern for us. Is there also a concern that this Amendments, if they go through the new legislation, could be a foregoer to other countries or other areas that they could use this as a precedent. Yes, that's absolutely true, and it's a concern. So you would you, again, you, you don't want to see these these types of things set as precedents because then they can they can encourage other types of uh, you know copycat actions in other countries. Are there any international laws that this this might be violating? Our advice to us, which we communicated in our recent paper blank check, suggests that, that this legislation could potentially be contravening not only the Bougainville Constitution, uh, but also the PNG Constitution, which is still, the, the Bougainville Constitution still sits under the PNG Constitution for the moment until it becomes fully independent and also violates quite a few different provisions of international human rights law. Yes, I mean the difficulty with human rights law is that you know is enforcement, right? Because lots of lots of countries break human rights law, and there aren't always consequences for that. This is another reason why the legislation is is so problematic. Is this issue likely to be settled when the elections are held in August? Because Mamas is not standing, is he? Who is standing, and who's supporting it? There are a few different candidates and there are about five political parties. We're not really sure where the candidates stand. There are a couple of other um, people in, in the in the, the moment's cabinet which who were very strong, including the mining minister, who were very gung-ho for this legislation. We don't really know what is going to happen. It really depends on how the election plays out and, and what position is taken by the new president and whether the new parliament continues to be sceptical about these amendments as to whether it will go through. And I mean, so the elections are going to be called this week, so there's nothing going to happen before the election. So the question will be, who gets elected and do they see this as a, a desirable course of action to pursue or not? I mean, we certainly would hope not, because given the, the concerns that I've already raised. But, you know, it's, it's really, that's, that's all that's for, for us to see how it pans out. Is there also a concern about divide and rule amongst the landowners on this issue? Answer that question this way. There there's always seems to be different landowner groups. And, and it, when we're talking about the Panguna mine, where which is one of obviously the, the, at the moment the only mine that has been operating and has a history in PNG, different landowner groups seem to be allied with different companies. And so that that is... Uh, something that can often undermine one particular company getting control because there are different groups who are allied with different companies. Yeah, that seems to be a, um, a phenomenon in Bougainville that, that tends to occur. Whether you call that divide and rule, I don't, I don't really know. I think it's more just different groups taking different views about um, about who they want to work with. And, and, and But then there's also very strong anti-mining groups within 
both the Panguna landowners, but also more broadly in across Bougainville. So you've got sort of two different debates. You've got the, on the one hand, the sort of prone mining landowners who are sort of jostling for influence, um, so connections with particular companies. And then you've got the larger debate or struggle between those who want mining and those who don't. And so it is pretty, basically, it's very complicated. And uh, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a complicated situation. So there'll be lots of lobbying going on right up to the elections? You mean lobbying from mining companies and that sort well, of thing? Well, also the local people? I mean, yeah, the, the election process is obviously going to be, um, you know, it, it's a sort of weird and wonderful, you know, election campaign in, over at Ambrogenville. It's, um, you know, lots of heated debates and, um, you know, mining is going to be a, a central part of it. Whether this particular legislation will will be a focal point of the campaign or whether it's just going to be a larger debate about to mine or not to mine, which is a debate that's been going on for years. As, as we've been documenting, we shall see. So the the issue of to mine or not to mine has sort of been pushed into the background of, of this and there are plenty of avenues for the people of Bougainville to progress their country without mining. I think you probably will recall, Dan, that we, Jubilee, did an entire report about this very question back in at the end of 2018, so about 18 months ago. It's, uh, the report is called Growing Bougainville's Future, and it's on our website, as is a short film called um, Bougainville, It's in Your Hands, Topics and Vision, um, which I, um, as well, title as well. Essentially, what uh, the intention of that research was to was yes to demonstrate that point indeed that there is a choice the Bougainvilleans do have a choice and mining may not be the right choice there are going to be downsides there certainly it would be a long time before revenues are going to come through from mining and even when even when the revenues do come as we've seen from the experience of PNG. It really is an open question whether those revenues can be translated into positive development outcomes. Um, on the other hand, Bougainville does have a very rich agricultural history and very rich agricultural land. Uh, and definitely there are challenges in terms of earning foreign exchange with agriculture. But and one, one of the things our, point, or our report pointed out is that there's going to be challenges either way, even with mining, because a lot of the profits end up overseas and the, the revenues don't often um, stay in the country anyway. So the other thing that, that our work looks at is the fact that there is just, it, it's really expensive to mine safely in a country where there's high rainfall, high seismic activity, copper gold deposits, which are, as I said, very toxic. So it's hard for everybody to make money. It's hard for the country and the mining company and the shareholders to make money at the same time and you know with copper prices going up and down that's that's a further challenge as well so there's just so many questions about committing to a, a mining path that it's somewhat dubious about whether that is the best I mean obviously the choices with the Bougainville people but I guess one of the things we've been trying to do is just ask questions about how much benefit is really going to come if it commits to a mining back development path. I'd like to acknowledge Marilyn Favini, who's been made a member mm. of the Order of Australia. I don't normally talk about yeah. Orders of Australia or any of those awards, but Marilyn's a pretty special person, isn't she? 
Yeah, she is. I mean, she just did so much work on documenting, which is obviously with with her her and her family have really had such a, made such an impact on on the, the the cultural and political life of Bougainville. But then also, you know, her own work, which I've read and admired, of about um, the human rights impacts of of the conflict. It was sort of before my time, but you know, I, I understand that there was just years of years of advocacy that, that Marilyn did. So, yeah, no, we're obviously um, very, you know, extend our congratulations to her, which really deserves an award. Thanks, Luke. Thanks a lot, Jen. Dr Luke Fletcher, who's the Executive Officer of Jubilee Australia. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. On the program last week, we inadvertently played an interview with Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association, which was not the current one, but recorded in the previous month. My apologies to Kate, and now the interview which was intended for last week. The lockdown continues in the Saharawi refugee camps near Tunduf in southwest Algeria and in the Moroccan-occupied part of Western Sahara. A successful policy so far? there are still no cases of COVID-19 in the camps or the occupied territories. But it's interesting how lockdown can impact on all manner of things. And this is the funeral of a very special Western Saharan person. And to tell the story is Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. Yes, he died in Spain at the beginning of April. But because Spain was then in the midst of its COVID epidemic, they wouldn't allow the repatriation of his body to people in Western Sahara. He's had to wait until now when they did uh, release it, and so they could come and give him a proper funeral in the camps, bury him there in the cemetery they have in the camp where he used to live in Samara. Weird, really. I had wondered why I hadn't heard anything about a funeral. Now I know. The tradition of Muslim people, I thought that people had to be buried within 48 hours or something like that. I wonder how they got around that one. Exactly. I I, I haven't heard any of those details about it. You know, it's just reported that it was because of the epidemic and and, uh, whether it was Spain's rule or general EU rule, I don't know. So that's what that's what took place. But exactly, and, and in that sense, it kind of inflicts yet a little bit more pain on the people because they feel that it wasn't quite right. I'm sure that it, that he had to wait to be buried like that. And of course, all the people who would wanted to have been there couldn't be there. That's true too, because he was very widely admired and and liked. He had become very well known around the world because he was the coordinator with the United Nations peace mission, uh, Minoso, and so he was always travelling and so always well well known in all around Europe but in America as well and no doubt around Africa. So yes, I'm sure there were a lot of people who would like to have been among the crowd, which was nevertheless a very considerable crowd. Has he been replaced? Not to my knowledge. I haven't heard about that, but unfortunately the whole peace process is rather in the doldrums at the moment. It's part of 
Morocco's general plan of attrition. I think that they've managed to get it into a stalemate where there's less interest in getting it moving because they know that Morocco will just undermine it and scupper it. It's quite hard for the Security Council to get the momentum. They'd managed to do that with Horst Kurler. He was getting very good progress, we thought, but it was a little bit too good for the Moroccans. He came to a realisation that he was getting no support. Well, he knew that the Moroccans would drag their heels, but he felt he wasn't getting adequate support from the United Nations either. And so he, he resigned. He resigned on health grounds, but no doubt it plays havoc with your health when you're being stymied at every turn as well. So, yes, that was a pity because he was the very best chance that we've had recently of actually finding a way out of this stalemate, this conflict, which has gone on for 40 years, that there should be refugees receiving, quote, emergency food aid for a period of time. I don't know what's going to happen. It's hard to see, really, except that it's very clear where justice lies, and one keeps hoping that justice will prevail. Just staying with that issue for a moment... With the lockdown, how does that aid get through, not only to the camps, but also to the Moroccan-occupied part of Western Sahara? They don't get any aid in the Moroccan part of Western Sahara. It's only the refugees in in Algeria who get the UN aid. I think probably, like other countries that depend on importing food, those restrictions will have been lifted during the lockdown. Well, the UK is a bad example because they've been very slack about everything, but they are very dependent on on food coming into the country, so there hasn't been any change really during the thing there, and I imagine it's a bit the same with the camps. Although, what what the problem for them is really that because it's been going on for such a long time, they have what uh, is well known as donor fatigue, so uh, and other very urgent situations occur in the international scene, it's always hard for them to get enough aid and to get the right food to feed the population. The children are uh, certainly technically malnourished. They don't get adequate distribution in the different food groups. They don't get enough fresh food. So there is always that problem. And the Sahrawi Red Crescent has actually made an appeal, worldwide appeal, to get some more assistance for uh, increasing the the aid. Well, they, they identify vulnerable groups, which are you know, pregnant people, old people, children. They get certain foods that the rest of them don't get. But the basic foods are very, very basic. There's just sort of like lentils and flour and oil and I forget what, you know, a few things like that. Sometimes rice, sometimes pasta. It, it depends a little bit. But the barley then they grind up and make into couscous. Uh, they get wheat that they can make into bread. But occasionally they get tins of sardines, I believe. There's also a battery chicken farm there, only one I've ever been into, and they're pretty awful. But when I started thinking how they could have a free-range hens over there within the searing heat and provide shelter for them, and it's better for them to have a climate-controlled big shed to live in, I'm afraid. So there are eggs, but there's only something like 10,000 a day, 
for a population of 180,000 or something. So you can see that they don't go very far. When you talk about the lack of food or the lack of a variety of food for the children, I'd imagine it's important that a lot of those children, or I don't know many, how many, have the opportunity to go to Cuba or Europe for a couple of months a year in the really hot times. That must be really important for their That's well-being. Right. It certainly is, but unfortunately this year the so-called holidays in peace, vacaciones en paz, in Spain have been suspended and because of the problems, the epidemic. So they won't be going this summer. But uh, yes, a large number of children, some thousands of children, they don't go to Cuba for holidays. They go there for education and they have to stay. They don't able to come back uh, during their years in Cuba in the normal way but the holidays are mostly in in Spain but also Italy, France, Belgium and and other countries and the UK has taken children quite often but not not in very large numbers 10 or 20 each year. It nevertheless was a good way for people to become aware of the situation and get to know since they're hardly children and they find a way of getting to people's hearts very readily and so the Saharawis have often said that they're their best ambassadors. Tell us about a man called Khan Ross. And he's a very interesting character. He was a uh, diplomat in the British civil service, um, Brit- uh, diplomatic service. While he was there, he actually worked, did do a spell on the Middle East and North Africa section. I was living in the UK at that time and um, our coordinator would ring up to have a chat every now and again with the foreign office and tell them that something was happening and could they persuade the uh, British representative on the Security Council to support or not to support whatever it was that was going on. This is a, a, a standard bit of their lobbying work that they do. I remember him saying... Oh, there's this guy who's really in- interested in Western Sahara, and I thought, oh yes, you know, <laughs> he, he, he's just very professional about being polite. But it seems that it was Khan. He was at the same time becoming, we didn't know, but he was becoming disillusioned with the work that he was being asked to do because he was being asked to implement the sanctions against the Iraqi people during the Iraq War. He could see how much harm that was doing. Uh, to the people. He couldn't persuade his uh, superiors to to change their policy, so he just decided in the end to leave. Then he had a bit of time thinking, and he wrote his book called Independent Diplomat, Dispatches from an Unaccountable Elite, which he felt that was what diplomats were doing. They were just acting behind the scenes, and they were doing things that nobody never having to account for what they were doing. And nobody got to know. There was no transparency. He particularly noticed how where there's a struggle involving people who are not represented in the United Nations, they really have no power to put forward their side of the story. And so he decided at the end of all that to actually create an organization, which he also called Independent Diplomat. The idea was to have this 
alternative core, if you like to, uh, diplomatic core of people who would help countries like Western Sahara, like South Sudan, like uh, Kosovo, like Somalia, to have access to diplomatic services. He's been arguing very strongly to try and allow them to have representation to at least be present in the Security Council where their case is being discussed. Even if they can't contribute to the discussion, at least hear the debate. And so it's been a very, very interesting organization, uh, which he's headed now for 17 years. And now he's uh, decided that he wants to hand over to someone else. He's got a new executive director called Reza Asfar, who has been working with them for some while, himself also a former diplomat. So Khan will remain as a part-time senior advisor to help with the transition for a year. Watch this space with some interest, both what's going to happen in Independent Diplomat and what Khan Ross is going to do next, because he's an interesting guy. And I'm sure the people of Western Sahara are as well. That's right. If you go to his website of Independent Diplomat, you know, we'll probably be able to see pictures of him sitting down in a tent with all the uh, Saharawis and, and having a sort of round table or uh, discussion with them about the situation and so on. He's become very closely involved with, with Western Sahara. There is somebody in Australia who's involved with Independent Diplomat, but his main concern is about climate change for the Pacific countries. He's, he knows about Western Sahara as well, of course, but uh, his main interest is, is in the um, Pacific region. They've got people around in a lot of different countries, and they've been doing some very good work. Let's talk now about Mohammed Dahani, who's now in Tunisia. What's his story? been a human rights activist for Western Sahara, and as such he got imprisoned during which time he was very badly tortured. He's been released and Amnesty International are helping, trying to help him get rehabilitated in Tunisia. But the, uh, what, what's happened is that he's been talking about his experiences in the Moroccan prisons and how the Moroccan secret services or security service or whatever they are have used the opportunity of having young Moroccans to turn them into terrorists, uh, Islamic terrorists. And he's been you know, telling these stories and explaining exactly what they did and how they did it. The Madrid bombings that took place or other things that took place in, in Belgium and so on, often has been traced back to a, a Moroccan. Then the Moroccans say, ah, we have identified this person, we will go and disband the, the terrorist cell. And so they go and disband the terrorist cell, because, which is very easy for them. They know exactly what, who's in it because they put them there. So it's a sort of strange game that's been going on for some time without people fully realising what it, how it worked. You can imagine that the Moroccans are not very happy about these revelations, trying to pressure Tunisia into extraditing him. So far, Tunisia has held firm and they refused to. Who knows what will happen? That's also sort of like what's this space story. 
there are uh, Europeans who are trying to assist this man, uh, Jihani. You know, we don't know quite where he'll end up. Finish off, Kate, with The Great Wave. A wonderful artist called Mohamed Suleiman does wonderful calligraphy, the sort of calligraphy that is a picture as well as uh, all this writing, if you know what I mean. Recently did a portrait of Al-Wali, one of the early founders of the Polisario Front, in this style. It's beautiful. But he's um, become aware of the problem of plastic in the ocean for World Environment Day. He posted a video that he made of himself making a replica of the famous Hokusai woodcut, Japanese woodcut, of the Great Wave, the Tsunami Wave, that everybody knows because it's been the most widely used of any of his woodcuts. He gathered together all the waste plastic that he could find, as you can imagine, most of them being different shades of blue or white. He's made this uh, sort of replica of the of the Great Wave out of all these plastic songs and bottles and bits of just plastic uh, paper um, and bags and, and all the rest. It's, it's very skillfully done. He's done a lovely video to go with it. If you queued into YouTube, the Great Wave of Plastics, would that bring you to that video or not? I think it probably would. I've been speaking with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Last week we heard the first part of an interview with Brian Terrell, a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, who's based in Iowa, USA. He spoke about the writings over 50 years ago of jailed Catholic priest Daniel Berrigan about the notion of normalcy and its inherent dangers. And for us, the worst thing we can do is return to normal after the pandemic, as normal is an obstacle for peace. And what we need is a very different future. Now to the second part of the interview with Brian. Is there a concern that those fascists, the neo-fascists and the the far-right white, will get out on the streets in the near future? Because they have been fairly quiet lately, but wouldn't want to imagine what would happen if they got out in the streets as well and started battling. Because we saw just a couple of days ago what was happening in London. What are your thoughts? Well, I think in the United States, the actual Antifa movement is really hardly exists. And I, I think when Trump is talking about it, he's actually talking about not a movement by that name, but, but, but about actual anti-fascism. comes in many forms. You know, I strongly believe in nonviolent dissent. The nonviolent resistance is, you know, the most effective way to go. Like I said, I was, I met Dan Bergen when I was 19 years old, and I've learned about nonviolence, have been schooled in it. Other people haven't had those advantages. And even Gandhi said that people who are not able to resist nonviolently have to resist violently, that it's better that non-action is, neutrality is worse than anything. I don't want to see violence in the streets. I don't want to see it by anti-fascists. I don't want to see it by police. But I think the responsibility is on uh, uh, when the police are disarmed and when people have a chance to make a living and and when there's equality in terms of education and health care 
and housing. This is what's going to uh, end violence in the street. And there isn't any kind of heavy boot by the police or the National Guard or what Donald Trump affectionately calls the SS is, is just going to make things more dangerous for all of us. A, a violent police response is, is engendering crime. It's not, it's not an answer to crime. Is there a concern of what might happen in the next few months leading up to the election in November because Trump is sort of a bit on the back foot now, what he might do? Yes, it's, it's frightening. There's a, it is frightening. The, um, this is a very strange and dangerous time. I think it's hopeful to see the, the empire in decline. But it's frightening to to think about what that empire might do in its desperation. And by that, I'm thinking of Donald Trump is very frightening, but the whole, the whole establishment is, is as well. It's not just him. Inevitably, there's some hard times coming. But, you know, many have said it's, hopefully it's the dawn of a new age. Important social change has never come easy. It's never come without a struggle. We have a struggle ahead, but I'm just so encouraged at the level of discussion these, these, just these last weeks. I live in a very rural, abandoned area of the United States in southwest Iowa, and I have to go 40 miles to the nearest place where there's even a streetlight, a stoplight on the little town of Creston of 7,000 people. But I've been up there a few times this last week, and uh, there's a group of high school kids who are standing on the side of the road of the state highway that goes through town every day with uh, Black Lives Matter, remembering George Floyd. You know, this little town, and, and you know, the, the, the tallest building is the grain elevator. So this is happening all over, you know, in ways that uh, just impossible, very difficult to, to imagine uh, two or three months ago that we would, that as a people would be having the discussion that people would be on the street like they are now. Yes, the possible reactions of the powers that be to this are, are daunting. But almost the paradox, almost for the same reason, there's reason to hope. Just talk for a few minutes about your farm where you live, Brian. I'm sure that because of your activism work, you don't get there as often as what you would like. I can hear the birds in the mm-hmm. background. Is that right? Yes. What's it like living there? Oh, it's beautiful. And I'm, I'm usually uh, home half the time. I live here with my, my wife, Betsy. We raise two kids. They're grown and gone. And we almost always have other people here. This is all, usually very busy. People coming to help with the gardening. And uh, Betsy is a weaver and come to learn weaving and spinning. Uh, we raise dairy goats and we have chickens and a very diverse garden. And the garden looks better than usual because I've been home all the time, but, but we miss having company these days. And I also itch for the city as well. Uh, but if I, I, I really realize that to be sheltered in place could not be in a better place than where I am now. And what we're trying to do is we've been here for more than 30 years and is, you know, inspired by the Catholic worker movement, uh, which is 
about activism, but also about building alternatives and the way that we live. Still, we're not innocent ourselves, but but uh, as modern North American white folk, we live in ways that are honest, sustainable. If peace breaks out, if the people of the world are allowed to use their land and use their labor the way they choose, they're not going to be using their land and their labor to feed us and house us. And we're going to have to learn to do some of the work of raising food and making things, getting out of the abstractions. So that's what we are trying to do here, to the extent possible, to live by the work of our hands and to, to live in ways that are nonviolently, nonviolent and how uh, we spend more of our time doing things so we don't need money rather than making money. So, yeah, I think for, for, for me it's been a very, very good balance to be an activist and a person in the country. Sometimes I feel the whiplash going back and forth, but I'm very grateful for, for life as it's unfolded for us here. Finally, Brian, is there any news from the courts about your seven friends who, in April 2018, entered the Kings Bay Naval Station? Yes, just a few days ago, uh, Liz McAllister, who's 80 years old, the oldest one of the uh, of the seven, she spent two years in prison before they, in effect, evicted her <laughs> after she refused to pay bond. But they didn't want her in their jail anymore. So she's been out for, for a year or so. She was sentenced to time served and having to pay, uh, oh, they fined her like $30,000, but she's, because she has no money, she's going to be expected to pay back for restitution for the, the uh, destruction of the naval base, some $25 a month. I'm, I'm not clear whether she's going to be interested in restitution, and that would leave the court to decide what to happen next. And they did that by a video conference. The others have not agreed to be sentenced by video, and they are set, they are set for the end of this month, the other six. And it's unclear whether that's actually going to happen. They can't do it by video unless the, they, they agree. And if the, uh, there's an irony that they're trying to be safe from the COVID-19 by not having people pile in the courtroom, but then you know, one of the defendants has been in jail since the since the action you know, a couple of years ago, and the others are out on bond, but they will be, they can't go physically into court because of the danger of the COVID-19, but of course, are, are hot of the infection. I mean, it's the, 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 you know, the numbers are staggering, and it's almost uh, the conditions in U.S. prisons being uh, you know, uh, any kind of social, physical isolation, even access to soap and water. You, know, you have people pending together, breathing on each other. They're, they're, they're uh, hotbeds for infection. So there's a certain irony there. So they're in our prayers and concern. As I, I listened over the telephone, we were able to call in to listen to the sentencing. And in a sense, it was embarrassing. And you could tell that the judge anyway, if not the prosecutors, recognized their ambiguous position because they're supposed to be judging a criminal. And here they were putting, sentencing a woman who was doing something that really is what they ought to be doing, <laughs> uh, judging the, the, the nuclear weapons, the existence of nuclear weapons and the weapons policies of the Trident submarine, judging them criminals, you know, which they clearly are. So we'll see. The others are all, uh, you know, because Liz had been in jail for close to, to two years. She got time served. 
it's unclear what will happen to the others. I think that most of them will be expecting uh, some more prison time. And that was Brian Terrell, a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. And we're coming up to the end of the month now, so if you haven't already pledged some money for our June appeal, please get onto the webpage on 3cr.org.au or ring this number 94198377 in the afternoons when staff will be here. And thank you. 3CR, here to stay.